think it's slowly, but you know, cannot drive and and they drive it for Europe and so let's pray for her to get her eyesight back again. Amen. Because she really needs help. Bernice, do you want us to pray for you? Can we pray for you? Let's let's just put our hands uh, just put our hands over toward where Bernice is. Father, thank you for your thank you, Jesus. Father, we know your promise is what is impossible for man is possible with God. Yes. <clears throat> yes, Jesus. We want to stand on your promises today. Father, through the Holy Spirit, would you reveal the promise of this miracle? To give her eyes to see. Give her eyes to see. Father, we love it when the Holy Spirit shows us and reveals to us these promises. And God, we pray for her overall health. Jesus, to be preserved for your faithful glory. We love you, Jesus. We love you, Lord. We love you. Father, restore sight. Father, full sight in Jesus' name. Yes, amen. We yes, rebuke amen. blindness in the name of Jesus. In the powerful name of Jesus. Thank you, Father, for this miracle right now. Thank you, Father, for touching her eyes. In Jesus' name. In Jesus' name. Amen. Bless you, Lord. Thank you, Father. How many have been how many of you have been close to Jesus this week? Close to Jesus. You know, it's one thing to say, you know, I felt like I've I've prayed, but I didn't feel like I was close to Jesus. I want you to get close to Jesus. I want our time together to remind us how important it is to get close to Jesus. I got this message this morning is the brokenness that separates. The brokenness that separates. I want you to turn to 1 Samuel 15. We're going to try and finish. I, I'm going to try and finish uh, Samuel chapter 15, 1 Samuel 15. I didn't realize when I started this that it would take the direction that it has and that it was going to go where it is. I was encouraged earlier this week by somebody else from the congregation that had said these last two messages have had a profound effect on their heart. And it's really, uh, and I've actually had a few people say I had to go back and re listen to them. If you don't know that you can listen to the messages online, um, you can. So AbundantLife.net, AG, AbundantLifeAG.net um, is where you can go to uh, get this, the sermons online. So the brokenness that separates. And as Samuel turned around to go away, Saul seized the edge of his robe and it tore. And so Samuel said to him, The Lord has torn the kingdom of Israel from you today and has given it to a neighbor of yours who is better than you. And also the strength of Israel will not lie nor relent, for he is not a man that he should relent. I think some versions may say repent, but still the same idea they replied. Father, thank you for your word because today, Lord, we know, just like any other day, Father, it's our lifeline. So many are not treating it like a lifeline, God. They, they can, it's a convenience to them. Lord, if it's convenient, we read the Word of God. If it's convenient, we study it. If it's convenient. But Lord, what we're missing is what the Holy Spirit is saying to the church every time we neglect the Word of God. So today, Jesus, I pray that you would animate. Through the Holy Spirit, you would animate the Word of God and bring it to life into our hearts. Lord, we need to touch the divine today. We need to touch the living God, not the idea of God, not a doctrine or a thought or a theory, but Lord, not even a theology. We need the revelation of Jesus Christ to our hearts fresh. Jesus, you said, I am the, I am the bread of life. We need that bread of life here. 
Lord, there's not a one of us in this place that God can say ultimately that we can do without the bread of life. Not an hour, not even a second. We need the bread of life. So Father, would you feed to us out of your word? Would you do me the blessing and pour into me, Father, with an anointing to be able to speak your word? Father, to every hungry heart, Lord, in every way that you would be able to move your words into the hearts of those who need it today, God. Let this message refresh somebody. Let the word that you speak open their eyes and bring into them what they need the most. And Father, we thank you that your word is life. It is a sword as well. And it cuts, but Lord, when it's done cutting, it brings life out of it. And I'm grateful, Father, that there is a death, but it's a death to everything that doesn't really have your life in it. We'll give you all the praise. In Jesus' name. Amen. We see here that Saul failed, his failed obedience turned into an aggression over his consequences. You know, and I was thinking about this because Samuel really was there. See, he wasn't, he was aggressive at Samuel, but it wasn't about Samuel. It was that essentially, if you think about it, and I think that the best way I would describe it is it looks to me like that Saul had realized the consequences of his disobedience had gone so much further than he had realized. And you have to realize that the devil will always take you down a road. And when he gets you down that road, you'll go farther than you planned on going, and it will cost you more than you planned on spending, and it will take everything from you. And by the time he gets you there, you'll finally realize that, oh, I missed the mark. And see, I think this is the, the idea was that Saul was now losing on far greater grounds than he realized, and there was no budging the prophet on this. And so he realized the consequences were now in his grasp. There wasn't this hope. There wasn't a gospel message of hope to Saul at this point. Saul wasn't getting this hope that maybe he'll be restored if he repents, everything's going to be well. And I won't say that there might not have been a place for that, but at this point, there was no place for it in his heart. And now he was realizing the consequences and with that realization of consequences, oftentimes I think that's when it's not that we come to a place of repentance. It's that the height of our selfishness in rejecting God has come to its peak. And now when you get to that point, it's when you feel that hopelessness weigh in on you that you will begin to act out in that sense of hopelessness. And that's what Saul was doing. And so when he did that, it was like he was grabbing a hold of Samuel and saying, Please don't go from me. Stop this from happening. I don't want to face those kinds of consequences. But while in the process of that, it actually tore his robe at the same time. But the aggression was to stop the consequences. And I think too many people have got their minds locked around what the consequences of disobedience and turning a hard heart toward God is. And they didn't ask, what is this going to look like in the end? What, what, what's the finished product of disobedience when I continue down that path? What's that really going to look like? It's, I've said this many times, and I believe no drug addict ever ended up a drug addict because he planned on it for his life. He ended up there not planning on it, and now he's facing the consequences of his decisions. There's a lot of people outside these doors that are living so far from God. They're living it up. They're getting what they want in life, and some are not. You've got to realize that some people are living a devastated form of life, struggling with everything that they can deal with, and some are living it up and having fun for the moment. But the consequences of that are all going to come down at some point on each one of us. Something is desperately wrong, and I want this to be understood. Something's desperately long, wrong when we feel like the fight to stop the consequences of disobedience outlasts the invitation for obedience. Some people are fighting so hard to stop the problem when all they have to do is go back to doing what God told them to do. It's like as if Saul couldn't get the picture here. It was like he thought, if I, could, I, I, I don't have a chance at obedience anymore, so I might as well just go ahead and do everything within my power to stop the consequence of losing out in the way that I'm going to lose out. And so he's grabbing a hold of Samuel not to say, I'm pleading to help me back into the path of obedience, but to stop him from having this finality to the very thing that he prophesied would come to pass. 
I want you to hear this uh, quote from George Mueller. I've got two of them. The other one from A.W. Tozer. And he says this, Nine-tenths of the difficulties are overcome when our hearts are ready to do the Lord's will. Whatever it may be, when one is truly in this state, it is usually but a little way to the knowledge of what His will is. Today, everybody wants to know the will of God, but really, I think he said it well. The will of God is right in front of your face. It's the resistance of your will to obey that's the problem. Miraged by the prayer, Lord, show me your will. Here's another one by A.W. Tozer. It is altogether doubtful whether any man can be saved who comes to Christ for his help with no intention to obey him. I think that was said very well. I think that's what you see in Saul as this whole thing continues to unfold throughout all of these verses is there's no intention to obey. There's still an Agag out there that's still alive and this king of corruption is still out there wreaking havoc and he's still in your life and you're not doing anything about it. But yet you're still trying to find a way to worship God. And this is the disconnect of the world. This is the disconnect of our generation. And this is the disconnect of so many churches. A sign that what God gave to you is going to be forfeited is when you develop a hostility to the people of God. Hear me clearly on that. A sign, you should be, hopefully he's got that. Go into the next slide there. A sign that what God gave to you is going to be forfeited is when you develop a hostility to the people of God. Listen to John, as he says in John chapter 4, verse 20. He says, If someone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen, how can he love God whom he has not seen? You can't possess an anointing. You can't hold on to your calling while you're hating your brother. I have watched already in ministry for not very long, and I can say I've, I've been in the ministry area, but not as a pastor to a church. I've already witnessed, not just in our church, but in churches, the kinds of things that cause division. The things that people will allow in their life to give them a reason to walk outside of the church, discontinue fellowship, to create a room for hatred or disrespect for you in their hearts. And I'm sorry, but brothers and sisters, I don't see that in Jesus' description of discipleship. What I see in Jesus' description of discipleship is love your enemies and do good to those who despitefully use you and persecute you. I, imagine, I can only imagine what He has for my brother. So when I begin to develop a hostility towards you because there's some grievance that's taking place, especially if you're my brother in Jesus, and, and, or my sister in the Lord, be aware, beware that you don't lose what God has for you if you continue to harbor that into your heart. I want you to go to verse 30. So this is the progression as we see. Um, he tears his robe, and then we move into this. And then he said, I have sinned, yet honor me now. He doesn't even have a gap between this self-centered idea and his repentance. I have sinned, yet now honor me. Please, before the elders of my people and before Israel, and return with me that I may worship the Lord your God. He's ripped his, his, his robe, and he's still, not, he's still holding on to this image. And what I see here is this, as he says, I have sinned, yet honor me. Saul was forfeiting. Authentic repentance for a superficial image. Superficial image. Just let me be look like something in front of people. See, Samuel, you know what's wrong, but they don't know what's wrong. And this is the this is he was feeling the weight of that consequences. Now my I'm going to be robbed of the appreciation of people, the recognition of people. Some of us are so out there for recognition, we'll do anything. And, and you, I'm telling you, we're looking at it. The way things are right now, 
You can go to... How many of you were alive when YouTube didn't exist? Praise God, right? How many of you were alive before Facebook was here? I know some of us thought that Facebook happened in the day of creation. It was somewhere in there, right? But it wasn't. And what, I, what you realize is that anybody it can put anything on display, and as long as there's somebody or a number of people who will watch it, it could become viral. You and I are one step from some viral video that all of a sudden the world recognizes, and before you know it, if it's viral enough, you could even have money for that whole thing. The, the pipe dream that kids are given today is that if you can be a YouTuber... You could make millions of dollars on YouTube just by showing your videos. You don't have to live, you don't have to live for anything more than to get the attention of everybody out there. But imagine once you've gotten that attention. Imagine once you've gotten that recognition and that fame, and all of a sudden it's being stripped from you. The kinds of feelings that come with that. I was important and I was legitimate. And the world recognized me. And I had fame and money and whatever else that goes along with it. And all of that recognition. And now it's going to come to an end. And that's salt. And yet, if he can, he's going to try and bolster the image and look like something in front of people that he's not. And that's something that we all have to come to the recognition. When God calls you to repentance, he doesn't sacrifice or he sacrifices your image to help you get there. You might look good. People might admire you. They might love you. They might have high respect for you. But in order to get you to repentance, sometimes you have to lose what you had in front of other people. And then he says that I may worship the Lord your God. And I was grateful because Troy last year, I mean last year, last week, you know, man, time flies, right? Last week he had shared with me, he caught that, in the verse, and I was like, you know what? Just from that alone, I felt like I was prompted to give this message for, t- for today, this Sunday. But he makes the statement, the Lord your God. He didn't say the Lord my God. Why didn't he say the Lord my God? I think it kind of becomes kind of obvious going through Saul's life why he didn't depict him as the Lord his God. And I think part of the reason for that is is that he was measure he he couldn't help but measure his validation based on Samuel's genuineness. Let me explain. Samuel was a genuine representative of what it looks like to wholly give your life to God. Samuel was authentic. Samuel was genuine. Let me tell you something. When you have somebody who's genuine and you're not immediately you lose your validation. You know you're not prime like they are. So essentially what I would say is that Saul looked at Samuel and said, by the measure of your life, by the flame of love and devotion you give to God, I don't have that. I don't have anything like what you've got. And if what I'm being called to is to serve God the way you do, I don't serve Him like that. He's not my God. I don't live for Him like that. So what you're seeing here today, and and this is what I want to say, is that what we're saying today oftentimes is don't compare yourself to everybody else. And what we're really trying to do is tell them, you need to find a way to build up your self-esteem in the light of genuine believers because you're not living for the Lord. And so what I want to say is this, when you start feeling like I'm a lower level Christian. I'm not really on fire for Jesus. And you can't validate yourself because you look at somebody else and you're like, they love the Lord. And I'm kind of, I'm not like them. I have problems in my life. Everybody has issues. And what we're trying to do is group everybody together in those issues and bypass the real problem. And what the real thing is, the Saul should have said, I see the difference in your life. And that authenticity and genuineness makes me want to get closer to God. Not validate myself. I don't need self-validation to be right. I don't need a good self-image. I need a right relationship with God. I need a right relationship with God. 
So we have so much today is, is that if we can bolster people's image, we can get them to climb out, up out of the hole of depression and dissatisfaction and addiction. If we can just get them to feel good about themselves and, and feel and validate themselves again, we can get them back to where they need to go. And I think that's as far from the gospel as anything can be. We don't need people diving into self-esteem that don't know Jesus. The moment you meet with Jesus and you've been in the presence of His holiness and God has exposed you for what you are and you come to repentance because of that and you let God work His will into your life and you quit making justifications for sin inside of you, you'll begin to find there's a power there and you don't need to validate yourself. Because Jesus justified you through the Spirit and the witness of the Spirit. And that's amazing when the Holy Spirit witnesses with our spirit that we're clean. We're washed. I don't have to sing it in a song to, to get you to be convinced of it. I don't have to make you say a sinner's prayer and tell you, hey brother, hey sister, after you said the sinner's prayer, you're a child of God. If you don't have the convincing by the Spirit of God, when you get up off of your knees that you've been born again and washed and the Holy Spirit is witness with your spirit, then you're not saved. You're not ready for heaven until He witnesses with you. Why do I say that? Because people will put on the act and not get the real thing. Some people will get the real thing because it's not an act. I got up here on my knees because I was truly humbled and broken before God. Let's read the next verse. Verse 31. So Samuel turned back after Saul, and Saul worshipped the Lord. And this is an interesting portion of Scripture because what we see in this is that Samuel told him, I'm not going with you, I'm not doing this. And yet, it seems like he is at this point. But what I want to reflect on is this. What's going on with Saul? What's happening with him? And I would say this, I want to ask this question. Did Saul worship the Lord or go through the formality of it? See, he's all about getting in there an opportunity to worship the Lord. Like he's missing out on something. But he's missing the Lord the whole way through this whole thing. In effect, Saul was worshiping the God who tolerates evil as long as it is in prison form. As long as it's in prison form. What I mean by that is, is that you're going to find that as soon as the next verse is Samuel says, go get Agag. Go get this rotten, wicked king and get this done and over with. And Saul's not there yet. And Saul is still doing this romancing, this kind of evil because he's found a way to imprison that evil. And what I'm saying here is this, is simply that Agag, or this thing can exist as long as it's not dominating me. I don't mind drinking. I don't mind smoking. I don't mind listening to unlawful music as long as it doesn't make me feel corrupt. As long as I don't get drunk. As long as we, we keep creating this atmosphere that says... I can tolerate evil as long as it's in prison. It's not having an authority over my life. Let me tell you something. Anytime you tolerate a sin, it already has an authority over your life. As, but we're only human. Well, how many un, uh, we're only humans are you going to put onto the thing where you could just let Jesus have His way, right? What can't Jesus defeat when it's all said and done? So in effect... This is what we see in Saul. And what I mean by that is, when he's going, he's trying to worship the Lord, he's bringing into his worship all the refuge and the trash that's still in his soul. He's not bringing Jesus in. I don't find Saul being a broken Christian. What I find Saul is a non-Christian experience of what brokenness does to a person in the end and how that they image God. See, there's so many that don't know Jesus today is simply because their brokenness has defined who Jesus is going to be and who Jesus is. So worship can become, listen to this, worship can become a form of spiritual placebo if there's a superficial surrender. You know, what I've been noticing today more now than I've ever noticed it before is that 
We don't worship Jesus. We listen to Christian music. We have people that can be so disconnected from God, but yet they still listen to Christian music. There's a spiritual placebo there. I feel like I feel good. And we, we invite people to come to church because we want them to feel good. We don't, we don't want the difficulty you've been facing in life to be the same one you feel in church. And I don't want that any more than anybody else does. But sometimes I can't make life, I can't, I can't, I don't want to help you through spiritual placebos because that makes you feel good. I want you to get to the place where there's maturity in Christ so that you don't have to feel good to be good, to be where you need to be. And so we see so much music, and it's all about the emotion. How many of you, you grew up in the, in the hymns? Right, I'm speaking to the right audience today. You grew up in the hymns. You grew up with some of the old songs. And how many of you can tell me, just shake your head, if there's a big difference from the modern music to the hymns? Right? The message is completely different. I mean, I love my favorite, one of my favorite hymns is there's a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins. Sinners plunged beneath its flood lose all their guilty stains. I love that. I'm like, you don't have to make a song out of that to be pleasurable to listen to. And this is, I think, the difference is. If you strip the music from the songs today, you'll have a message that feels like it's superficial. But if you take the music from the hymns of the old day, you'll have something you can bite into. We can sing all day long, I love you, love you, love you, Jesus. We can repeat the same old verses over and over again and it not have meaning. But boy, there's something about the lyrics, not the music, that we should be singing for. Music is great. God ordained the music, but the music that goes with the lyrics, not the lyrics that goes with the music. We've got it so reversed today, and I think that that's what we're seeing is that the reason it's reversed is because we had to create music and we had to create an atmosphere of worship that would invite the half-hearted so that they would come to church. It's a sad reality. We needed to find a way to produce something to people who didn't want something. Man, I'm preaching today. I'm glad you guys showed up. <laughs> And so we begin to feel like when somebody has... Now, I, I want to even think about this because I remember from my fast, I realized something. There, when I went to a fast, I didn't go to spiritual revival. I went to spiritual... I went to some, a camp of depleting myself and feeling... But I felt revived through it. I felt revived in it. And what I want to say is this, is that sometimes we got so much hype going on the person that's really walking with Jesus. I was sharing with my wife, there's a guy here, not in our church. I'd love it if he was. But he's, he's a fellow brother. He's in our community. And I was telling my wife, I was like, that man, he'll ride his bike from here to Joseph, and he'll go hike out and go pray on a rock. And then when he tells a testimony about somebody that he prayed with, and how they gave their life to Jesus, he pretty much helps you understand that there's nothing special about him. I was sharing with her, I was like, sometimes I say hi to him. I mean, I go out of my way to say hi to him when I get a chance, and sometimes he either kind of recognizes me or something. What I get out of it isn't that he's blowing me off, it's that he doesn't see himself as giant and great. And when I, when I think of that, I think that's what Jesus intended for every single one of us. A secret, hidden life that doesn't make me big, but makes God huge. And that is spirituality. And that's not what we're seeing in our worship today. We're seeing something that makes me big while I'm really small with God. When you've suffered for Jesus and... And here we were praying this morning over somebody. And as somebody who, when we go to serve and help, they often, I can tell, 
they want to give back and they can't. The physical ability to do so is not there. And I was reminded, I want, I want you to hear me on this. I was reminded of what God gives me back through them because of their desire for me. Listen to the Word of God. It says, delight yourself in the Lord and He will do what? Give you the desires of your heart. So if you're in a position, you're like, man, people are helping and doing and physically being there for me. And I want to do something back, but I can't. Whoa, 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 whoa. Hold on. What did the Word say? If you delight yourself in the Lord, He'll give you the desires of your heart. So what am, what am I saying? If your love for Jesus has said, made Jesus look down on you and said, I want to give you what's in your heart. And what's in your heart is, Lord, I want you to bless him or her in a way that I can't do. I want you to touch their life and minister to them because I can't do more for them. What do you think Jesus does with that? Does he dishonor his own word? He hears what's in your heart and he gives to others based on the desire of your heart for them. I'm like, you don't get it. it like, I, I think the devil is trying to discourage people of age and health issues and let them say, you know what, you're pretty much done. Your hope is over with. And really, God's like, I'm just promoting a promise that nobody else gets to see because I'm going to furnish for others the desire of your heart. So keep on desiring. Keep on envisioning. I could pray right now. Lord, to the day we die, let the moment we close our eyes and breathe our last breath, be the, the final breath be a moment of vision for another soul, for God to bring in His salvation. Don't die. Just letting go. Remember what God stores in just the heart alone. And why do I say that? Because otherwise, you pretty much earn the opportunity at some age to go through the rest of your life having no more hope from God because you can't do more physically. And the truth is, is that God gives us because we love the Lord. Jesus, I mean, the Bible says it well when He's talking about David. I, I feel like i got to say this. I, I, I wasn't planning on staying here, but I'm here. The Lord looks on the heart. That's how He recognized David. That's why David was promoted behind Saul. Is because he had heart. And God loves to minister through that heart. I think I've got the message out. Encouragement, the best I can. Saul was holding on to worship while he was throwing away his calling. He was trying to figure out how to make this worship thing work when you throw away your calling. Well, let me tell you something. You can't throw away your calling and still worship God well. <laughs> it's like trying to have, trying to worship God and have brokenness in my marriage. Like, Lord, bitterness is happening right here. And I'm going to go do this and make it all well. Maybe, maybe you spent some time worshiping the Lord, but you're still going to have to face your spouse in marriage. And you're still going to have to get over those issues because the Bible tells us if we carry, in, we carry bitterness into our marriages, it actually keeps us from being able to pray. Anyway, really important. But we throw, he was throwing away his calling while he was holding on to this worship. So disconnected from God, and yet somehow, in that disconnect, I'm going to worship the Lord. Now, I would say, there is a worship that has a repentant attitude in it. Like, I'm coming to Him, I'm worshiping Him with the plan to come back into my relationship and make things right. That's beautiful. Okay. Agag represents... Oh, one more verse here. In verse 32, it says, And then Samuel said... So Samuel, Sam, 1 Samuel... Uh, 15.32 Then Samuel said, Bring Agag, king of the Amalekites, here to me. So Agag came to him cautiously. And Agag said, Surely the bitterness of death is past. What do I see in this? Agag represents unfinished repentance. Something that you didn't finish up with God. And so, uh, in Psalms 66.18, it says, If I regard inequity in my heart, the Lord will not hear. The Lord will not hear. If I hold on to inequity in my heart, the Lord will not hear. 
Your agag will cut you off from God, but give you the forms and feelings of worship. I think that's why Saul was there, because somehow he had gotten this mindset deluded and deceived, but that I can continue on in this evil of heart because he saw it as an innocent form of transgression when God didn't. In 2 Timothy chapter two verses, uh, chapter 3, verses 2 through 5, 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 2 through 5, it says, For men shall be lovers of them own selves, lovers of money, boasters, proud, blasphemers, disobedient to parents, unthankful, unholy, unloving. Do I need to go any further? Traitors, headstrong, haughty, lovers of pleasure more than lovers of God having a form of godliness, but denying the power. What's he saying? He's saying that there's either going to be Christian people or people who come into the Christian environment who have a form of godliness, but this is what they have going on in their life. We would have thought that this was the uh, rotten sinner. This is not the professing Christian. But they're blasphemers. They're using God's name in vain. They're disobedient to their parents. This is the kind of they, 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 they have a form of godliness, but these are the kinds of things that thwart it and keep it from being real godliness. Counterfeit repentance produces contemporary worship. Contemporary worship is that worldly form of worship that actually doesn't bring me solely surrendered to God, but unsurrendered and yet still singing. That's what I mean by contemporary worship. I want to give you this quote by Stephen Charnock. It says, Without the heart, it is not worship. It is stage play. It is an act or an acting apart without being that person really a hypocrite. We may truly be said to worship God, though we lack perfection, but we cannot be said to worship God if we lack sincerity. Now think about that. You don't have to sing a song. You don't even have to sing one song in church to worship. You don't have to, you don't have to listen to one song to worship. You don't have to say the name of Jesus to be worshipped. But you do have to have a sincere heart even without making a statement of wanting to be right with God. That itself is the very seed of worship, everything else is an expression that comes from that seed. If you're singing a song from an attitude of heart, I'm surrendered to God, then you're worshiping Him. If you're singing a song and you're not worshiped and surrendered to God, you're not worshiping Him. Jesus said it well to the Pharisees. He says, you worship in vain and you teach for doctrines the commandments of men. So contemporary worship comes from this. And we're all feeling the weight and the struggle of that as we're just trying to worship the Lord in honest sincerity. Continue, con contemporary worship is attractive. It is conditioned on the feelings it gives, not the heart it produces. Stop protecting the song and instead protect your purity. You'll have, if you have but two words in a song, it'll be far better than it will be a long song without purity. Protect the purity. People are trying to protect a song today. We're trying to hold on to the song. Well, we have whole groups like Hillsong that went south and people, the, a good part, portion of the church has lost their confidence in any of the songs they produce now because of the impurity of which they have allowed themselves to fall into. And we have to remember that the song loses its value when it's the impurity that continues to pour out that song. So we're looking that you would protect it in holiness and show us what it really is. Contemporary worship is a way of satisfying half-hearted Christians. I don't care if you're in fire, but rather if you're going to stay that way. When I was a young person in, um, and we would go to camps, we, and the young people would, and, and we'd have a van packed full of young people that, to be honest, they didn't worship the Lord during the, um, the meeting, but they would go to the camp meeting. And so they got in and they packed in and, and I, I hated and I still don't like 
that I would get to the place in my heart that I was already prejudging what was going to happen because I knew what past experiences were. But you know what I'm talking about. They would go to the camp. They'd get all fiery. They'd so love Jesus. They'd start praying the way that we wish they'd done before they went to. And then, no more than a month later, they're kind of back to where they were before. And so this is the kind of thing that we're seeing anymore is sometimes we can get all fueled up because somebody did something to get us all on fire. And then we lose that fire because there was, no, there, there was nothing substantial inside of us to begin with. It wasn't Jesus we were committed to. It was a feeling. So contemporary worship satisfies that, but I can't be, and I know you're not satisfied by contemporary worship for that very reason. Unfinished repentance may preserve your passion, but it will rob you of purity. Verses 32 through 33, it says, And Samuel said, Bring Agag, king of the Amalekites, here to me. So Agag came to him cautiously, and Agag said, so we're repeating these verses, Surely the bitterness of death is past, but Samuel said, As your sword has made women childless, so shall your mother be childless among women. And Samuel hacked Agag in pieces before the Lord in Gilgal. I want you to think about this. Is somebody else going to finish your line of obedience? God gave you something to do, but you didn't do it, so he's given it to somebody else. You, you know you're in uncertain ground when we're beginning to approach in that direction in life. Then God gave Esther the warning. If you don't go and, deal, and talk to the king, deliverance will come from elsewhere, but you and your house will, will come to death. So there is a need for it. And actually we see that when Judas, um, after he hung himself, and that they found another one to fit his office because there was an office to be filled. Do not let what God has commanded you to do be passed on to somebody else. Saul took Agag captive. Samuel took him to the grave. And, it's, then, and I just want to go back and repeat that part of the verse. It says, as your sword has made. So uh, Samuel is saying to Agag, as your sword has made women childless, so shall your mother be childless among women. Our real enemy is that evil that prevents the birth of godliness. And our real mission is to kill evil at its conception. It's not just to kill evil, it's to kill evil before it gets to birth. That's what's the beauty of the gospel. Because the moment somebody comes to Christ, there's an evil that would have come to be, but it's not going to be anymore. So the only the challenge we have is, is, do you know how to present the gospel to somebody who doesn't know Jesus and lead them savingly to Christ to be regenerated? Or is that still a mystery? If it is, let's talk. Let's talk about what we can do to help somebody come to Christ. Well, we said, well, it's all the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is working with you and in you to do some things for others so that they can come to Christ. He doesn't do it all, and you don't do it all. But we all have our part in leading somebody to Christ. God's idea of worship wraps around the way you ought to view sin. See, this is why Samuel is such a powerful revelation to us, is because we see the stark contrast between Samuel and Saul. And when we see this, what we really need to recognize is, is that Samuel has it in perspective. Saul doesn't. Which one do you want to be? Then we see this verse, and this is the most captivating verse out of this whole story that grabs me. It says in Samuel verse, 1 Samuel 15, 34, Then Samuel went to Ramah, and Saul went to his house at Gibeah. There's a separation. There's a separation. I want with all my heart, I want to have, I don't want separation, I want unity. But in order to have unity, you're going to have separation. Because I can't force you to love God faithfully and voluntarily. But when one of us does and one of us won't, that's where the separation happens. And realize this, that separation happens because of division. We're divided because Samuel loves God with all of his heart. Samuel will obey God faithfully. Samuel will suffer and make sure that God gets the, the glory in the end. Saul will not. 
and there's no making Saul do it. And at some point, that division will lead us to separation. And what you notice is this, that God says, I want you to capture it in verse 35. It says, Samuel went no more to see Saul until the day of his death. Nevertheless, Samuel mourned for Saul, and the Lord regretted that he had made Saul king over Israel. Did the Lord what? Regretted that he made Saul king over Israel. You notice two things. It doesn't say that Saul mourned for Samuel. And it doesn't say that God regretted that he made Samuel prophet. It said God regretted that he made Saul king. That's the separation. Because when we get down to it, whether somebody's in church this Sunday or next Sunday, whether they don't come to church at all or not, when it comes down to it, the separation exists in the commitment to Jesus Christ. Do you serve Jesus or do you serve something else? And if you have something else as your service, the the separation will not be with people who are like-minded. The people who have that same degree of commitment to God in their hearts. It will be a separation from those who have a faithful commitment to Christ in their hearts. So what I will say is this, that some I will say, oftentimes I ask, I feel like the excuse to not be here is lousy. But that's not my final... If you're following Jesus, okay. But I still have a hard time figuring out how you get lousy excuses not to come to church. You know what I mean? Now, that's not you guys. Praise the Lord. That's the other nine, right? You're the one that comes back to give Jesus the praise. So we love having that. And so what I realize is, is that faithfulness is built on one of two things. It's either built on, I'm going to follow Jesus and I don't give a care about anything else, or faithfulness is built on my image. What do people think of me by not coming to church or when I do come to church or any of that stuff or when I have communion or when I, all that stuff. And when it's about your image, you've already lost it. So let's get out of the image picture. So brokenness, if continued for a long period of time that doesn't come under the power of the cross, will lead us to separation. I've had people in my life, I remember, I'll I'll finish with this, but I had, when we went to Bible school, you thought that was heaven on earth. I mean, here it is, the elite of the elite. This is the special forces of the kingdom of God. Here's Here's these young men and women coming in, and obviously they're not going to Bible school because they have worldly interests and worldly cares, and they have something else besides Jesus they want to live for. So here's the best of the best. That's what I felt like when I got there. And so, but then the years passed and some of them made it in. Some of them made it to their first year. Some of them dumped off after their first year. But the ones that broke you were the ones that made it all the way. Not just to their senior year, but made it into their internship and out of their internship. And they made it in and out of the school flawlessly. They were my source of encouragement. Some of them for me were what I would say uh, an inspiration to just seek after God. I mean, everything about them seemed so passionate for the Lord. And I had one of the brothers that went there with me. He was a year under me. He called me about a year ago and he's telling me about one one of the others. And he said, I'm telling you, not because I'm gossiping. It's word is already out on the streets pretty much. And then he told me what was going on in his life. And, and I was like, I, I remember, is the moment he mentioned his name and I knew the context, I was like, I, in my heart, I wanted to say, don't say a thing. Not him. Not him. Like, yes, like I could see some of these other ones. They weren't even from the beginning, but he was like committed. He was a faithful, was he a faithful follower? How could he be in that kind of a mess? And so that's why for me, I'm like, there must have been some root of of brokenness, not bitterness, but brokenness, unsurrendered to Jesus, that finally got a hold of him later on in life, and he hadn't wholly given himself to Jesus. 
You know that some of us have some things we've been carrying on for the last 15 years that we haven't surrendered to Jesus? And you're, are you going to carry it to your grave? Are you going to carry it for the next 15 years, giving it another excuse? Or are you going to let Jesus be Jesus in your life? There's a call to repentance, and I'm praying for it. Now, you say, preacher, are you all there yourself? I hope so. But if I'm not, I'm praying by the integrity of your life that I will see the Samuel inside of you. I will see the Samuel inside of you that provokes me to not be a Saul myself. That's a genuine brother and sister in Jesus that's constantly making me feel aggravated about my brokenness. And Lord, you have to have your way inside of me. I walked up on this pulpit at one point feeling like I need recognition. People aren't going to be, man, if the church isn't growing, we don't have more people. James isn't a good minister. God help us when we get to that place because before I know it, I'll be doing the exact same thing that Saul was. But I had to die to that. Jesus had to have some preeminence to it. and I still feel like the Lord's doing some work there, right? But we need it. Let's pray together. Can we do that? I think Jesus wants to do something here. I think Jesus wants to do something right now in this moment. The Lord didn't give us this message for us to miss what the Lord wants to do. If anything, convicting messages have done this for me, made me want to seek the Lord with love. If it makes you just want to run out, I'm sorry, but it makes me want to seek the Lord with love. Lord, I am so grateful for that conviction. There's something about the Word of God that's just pressing me into Jesus. So again, this this Sunday, this morning, whether you feel like you can come to the altar or not, but I want to invite you to the altar. I want to invite you to come to pray. To come to pray, to spend an intimate moment alone with the Lord or together with Jesus. But spend some time with the Lord and let Him just say what He wants to say to you beyond what I just said. And we're just going to give Him the rest of this time. And again, I'm not formal closing because I know that the Lord sometimes likes to keep some of us here longer than others. I'm going to ask for Julia and my wife to come up. And as I pray and as I sing, if you feel like the Lord just calling you forward, just come forward. If you feel like the Lord just right where you're at is ministering to you, stay right where you are. Don't do anything that the Holy Spirit isn't directing you to do anyway.